Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm your producer, Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Recently, Rob completed a teaching series entitled Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns. This course will teach you how the book of Psalms was arranged and motivate you to create a personal hymn book inside your mind. You'll also journey alongside a young music minister as Rob guides him through 60 classic hymns we should never lose. This unique course includes a downloadable guide to the book of Psalms, live music samples of select hymns, and a bonus interview with worship professor Vernon Whaley. For a limited time, we're offering this nine-session online course at a 50% discount. Visit robertjmorgan.com and click on the Courses link to find and enroll in this self-paced study using any computer or mobile device. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for joining me with this podcast and for our ongoing study through the Book of Acts, a study that is called Unstoppable, because that's what the church and that's what the gospel is. Let me just say as we get started that I praise the Lord for the beautiful day we're having today. It's a Saturday, and Saturdays are typically my closest thing to a Sabbath when I'm at home on Saturdays. I sleep later. I um, have a leisurely devotion, a quiet time uh, when I get up at my desk, and then I'll do the laundry, and I'll wind the clocks, and I'll water the plants, and I'll put her out in the garden, and I just maybe do some decluttering. It's just a break in my routine. The other six days, I'm pretty hard at work, and on some Saturdays, I'm traveling, but today I'm at home, and I'm sitting at my little desk in the bedroom looking out the window, and it's just a beautiful day. I can't see a great deal because I let the shrubbery grow over my bedroom windows just for the sense of privacy from the highway. But it's just a beautiful day, and I hope that in your own rhythm of life, you take one day in seven as a day of, well, a change of routine, doing things not because you have to, but just because you enjoy it, and adding worship to it. For many people, that's a Sunday. Uh, For me, I usually have to work pretty hard on Sundays, so to me, Saturday is that break of routine. But we never get away from needing one day in seven as a day of an alternative day when we take care of ourselves and do maintenance in our own lives. And that's a biblical idea. It's the Sabbath. My one exception today is doing this podcast, but then I'm just full of the information that I want to share with you. Today we're in chapter 17, and if you're able to turn there, then I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts the fifth book of the New Testament, which tells the story of the launching of the early church and the taking of the gospel to the nations. We're in chapter 17, and to a very important passage that begins today in verse number 16 during the Apostle Paul's second missionary tour. It is here that he gives one of the greatest speeches in human history. I'm an orator, or at least I'm a communicator by profession. I'm not the best in the world, but I study people who give great speeches and great sermons, and I admire them very much. I wish I could have heard Charles Spurgeon. I wish that I could have heard Chrysostom, who they said had a golden mouth back in uh, Latin times. And then there are the secular 
speakers. Uh, we know some of them from speeches that either we have or have been recreated for us. For example, Mark Anthony's speech, uh, when he says, friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears, uh, coming through the words of William Shakespeare. We have some speeches of Cicero and some of these great early orators when oratory was the most important thing that a person would learn because the essence of leadership was bound up in your ability to move people and cast vision through your oratory. In more recent times, one of the most famous speeches is Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. But then, beginning with the days of video and audio recordings, we're able actually to go back and to listen to some of the great speeches. One of the great speakers of all of history is William Churchill. And my favorite Churchill speech is the one in which he says, we will fight on the beaches. And he uh, defies Hitler and mobilizes his nation for war. My favorite Ronald Reagan speech is his address at the 50th anniversary of D-Day, which brings tears uh, to your eyes still when you listen to it. Martin Luther King's speech, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, I Have a Dream speech, uh, I think will go down in history as one of the great speeches. There was Franklin Roosevelt with his ability to cast vision and give reassurance and my favorite FDR speech is his prayer over the radio on D-Day. You can't read that without, uh, uh, without tearing up a little bit. I think the greatest public speaker in human history was Jesus Christ, and maybe the single greatest speech ever given was the Sermon on the Mount. Although I love the Olivet Discourse and the Upper Room Discourse and the other messages of Jesus. For the Apostle Paul... As we go through the book of Acts, here we have his second great recorded sermon. It's very interesting that we are this far over halfway through the book of Acts, and we're just now coming to Paul's second recorded sermon. The first one was to a Jewish audience. It's in Acts chapter 13, and Luke wants to give us a sample of what Paul would say when he spoke to a Jewish audience to evangelize them. But now we are in the uh, city of Athens, and we have probably the most famous of all of Paul's speeches, and it would probably go down in the top 10 greatest speeches in all of human history, and that's his speech at the Areopagus or on Mars Hill in the city of Athens, and this is where Luke gives us his second recorded rendition of Paul's addresses, and this one is to a pagan audience. So Paul's first sermon in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 13 to a Jewish audience in which he starts from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, to build his case. Now, in Acts chapter 17, we have his second great sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts, which is spoken to a pagan audience, an audience of intellectual philosophers. And here Paul starts from a totally different place, and he follows a totally different line of logic as he evangelizes. So this, is, this speech has been studied by scholars more I think, than any other portion of the book of Acts. So let's just get into it here. The book of Acts chapter 17 and beginning with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, we get the idea here that on his second missionary journey, he had left Silas, had left Luke, uh, and had sent away Timothy 
uh, to the places that they had evangelized in order to help get the church established there. And he had gone on, and he was in Athens alone. Now, Athens was the greatest city of antiquity. It was the city of democracy. It was the city of the great orators. It was the city of learning, of uh, intellectualism, of, of philosophy. And even in Roman times, even though Athens was sort of past its prime, it was still known as the great intellectual center, the university center, the philosophical center of the universe. And so here Paul is alone in this beautiful, ancient, intriguing city. And if it had been me, I think I would have gone around sightseeing when I go to New York or I go to London or I go to Los Angeles or somewhere, then... You know, I'm, there's a lot of tourists in me. I want to see things. But I think we've got to learn to do what Paul did, and that is to look at the spiritual condition of every city we go to and to be concerned about that, to look into people's faces, to observe the way they live, to see immorality. You know, Lot was grieved in the city of Sodom. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Here, Paul is greatly distressed over the city of Athens. We, you know, it's not wrong to visit a museum, but we are not here primarily to be tourists. We are here to convey the gospel in a way that meets the spiritual needs of people, especially in the great population centers. So, going back to verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I don't think he had fully expected this. He knew about Athens, and he certainly was aware of its place in philosophical history. But he wasn't prepared for the forest of statues and idols and the temples, and the whole city was given over, not only to idolatry, but much of this was pornographic in nature. Some of these statues were pornographic because in antiquity, um, immorality and idolatry were linked together. And the word here, distressed, comes from a Greek word from which we get the English word paroxysm. Paul just was in paroxysms of distress to see that the city was full of idols. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So there was a Jewish community there, and he went and he no doubt gave a message to them very similar to what he gave in Acts chapter 13, but Luke doesn't record it for us because we already have his presentation to the Jews in chapter 13. But it says that he also spoke in the marketplace, the Agora, from day to day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, where did this babbler, what is he trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was some kind of forum or council. I'm not sure that he was forcibly brought before authorities um, because uh, the, the way that he was maybe in other cities. I think that, that this was a, a forum it was either political or intellectual. Uh, it might have been a city council. It could have been a university setting. But it was near the marketplace, and this was where ideas were discussed and, 
And it says, they brought him to the meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then parenthetically, Luke explains, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the greatest ideas or to the latest ideas. So... This was a forum in which debates took place, and uh, Athens, true to its history, was interested in investigating philosophical issues. So here, beginning with verse 22 and down through verse 31, the Apostle Paul gives his famous speech to the the, um, Oropagus and his sermon. We call it the Sermon on Mars Hill because some of the older translations uh, use that as the setting. So I'm going to read it for you, and then I want to come back and just show you the 18 steps and Paul's logic. Now, some of these steps, don't worry, this isn't an 18-point sermon. Some of these steps are just one sentence in length, and it's very possible that Luke condensed uh, Paul's material. But this, I want you to see the sequence of thought that Paul weaves together in presenting the gospel to a pagan audience who is not familiar with anything biblical or, in the sense, anything in the Old Testament. So let me read it for you, beginning with verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets and poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now that's the speech. Verse 32 says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again about this subject. So this is a very interesting speech. He doesn't even mention the name Jesus. He doesn't even mention the name Christ. Maybe it's because he gets to that point and suddenly there is reaction and heckling and an uproar 
because he is just getting to the point of introducing Christ. But nevertheless, we have here the essence of what Paul said, and I want you to notice the 18 different steps in his sequence of thought. He begins by identifying with them spiritually as people who are inherently religious. It says in verse 22, Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You are spiritual people. You have a spiritual hunger. There is something in your heart seeking after the existence of and the care from a good God. Now, this is where we often begin with people who have no knowledge of the Bible. If you are evangelizing someone who grew up in a Judeo-Christian setting or who knows something about the Bible, then maybe you begin with the Scripture. But here Paul was speaking to a pagan group of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers who didn't know anything, or at least their starting point, their common point, was not Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures. And so Paul began by saying, you know, we all have a common spiritual need. We are inherently religious. There is a vacuum in our hearts. We are seeking after God. I've been in your city now for a few days, and everywhere I go, I can see that there is a spiritual hunger, and you are seeking after God. I see you are very religious. And then secondly, Paul said, and the God that you need to know you don't know. So he says, as I walked around, I saw that you are in every way religious, and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So you do not have total knowledge of everything ultimately or eternally that exists. You don't know everything there is about every single God or all of divinity or deity. There is something still you do not know and you recognize you don't know it and so you built an altar to it. There is more to the divine, to the spiritual realms than you know. You recognize that and I recognize it. You are religious and you recognize that you're Knowledge spiritually is insufficient. You have an unknown God. So thirdly, let me make him known to you. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to tell you about. And fourthly, he says, God is the creator of everything. Let's begin there. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. If there is a God, it is only reasonable by nature of the very definition of the concept of God to recognize that he created everything, that all of reality is anything and everything that is not God himself, that God is the source of everything else because he is over all and created all. This God that we worship wouldn't be God if he did not exist independently of the creation, and if the creation had not flowed from his intelligent power. So he is the creator of everything. And fifthly, he is omnipresent. He is not limited to living in some temple that you and I build. This is what Paul is saying. He is making a very reasonable approach here. If there is a God, and if he created all of the universe, then obviously he cannot be contained or imprisoned or limited 
to some temple like the Parthenon here that you have built. He does not live in these temples that we build for him. He is not confined to them. He says here in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. So you are spiritual beings. I can recognize that. You don't know everything about the spiritual realm. You recognize that. I want to make known to you the God who you do not know. He is the creator of everything, and as such, he is omnipresent and does not live in a temple made by human hands. Next, Paul says, obviously, he is self-existent. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, Paul said. He is self-existing. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't, he, he doesn't need for us to do anything for him. He is um, the omnipotent God who cares for us and who needs nothing from us. But instead, he is the creator of life. Paul goes on to say, rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. It's not that he needs everything or anything from you, but we need anything and everything from him. So you see, this is just a very logical unfolding of uh, thought based upon the presupposition that there is in fact a God. Paul says you are religious. You recognize there is an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about him. He is the creator of everything. He is omnipresent. He is self-existent. He is the creator of life, and he created the human race. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the entire world. That's the eighth thing that Paul says here. The ninth is that this God controls history and even where we live, the areas of habitation. He marked out, he, uh, he created all nations that they should inhabit the whole world, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now, I could do a whole podcast on this. God has appointed every generation to its own time in history. History moves through cycles of generations. We aren't here for eternity on this earth. We are here just for the lifespan of our generation, and God has appointed that. He has appointed you and me to be alive at this particular point in history in order to serve him in the light of our generation. It says, he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So here we go. You are religious. You recognize there is an unknown God. I'm going to make him known to you. He is the creator of all. As such, he is omnipresent. He is self-existent. He is the creator of life. He is the creator of the human race. He controls history in the areas of habitation, and he wants a relationship with you. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. The Lord created all of this and created us and put us where he wants us to be and puts us in our time and history designed uniquely for us so that we would reach out and find him because 
He, this great God, who is the creator, who is self-existent, who is uh, omnipresent, uh, who created the human race, he wants an individual relationship with you. So you see how Paul's logic, one point falls into another like dominoes here. He wants a relationship with you. The next thing he says, which is number 11 on my list, is he is near to you. So verse number 27 again, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. The Lord is not very far from you, and the Lord is not very far from the worst sinner, from the most evil person in this world. He is close because of grace if we would reach out to him and receive him. He is not far from any human being on this planet. He is near to us. Now, the next thing, which is my number 12 on my list, is that God is the sole secret for a fulfilled and an eternal life. Verse 20, for in him we live and move and have our being. It is only in the God who created us and who wants to have a relationship with us that we really can live and move through this life and have our being have a fulfilling life. That requires a relationship with this God who is unknown to you, but whom I am introducing to you. The 13th thing is he wants to be your father. Verse number 28, as some of your own prophets have said, and now he's going to quote a Greek philosopher named Epipenides, I'm sorry, Epitomenides, Epitomenides, I'll probably have to say it three times to get it right, but here's what he said, we are his offspring. And so here, instead of quoting any scripture, Paul quotes this Cretan philosopher, and he's doing so to say, God wants us for his children. He wants to be our father. The 14th thing is obviously then God is not an idol. Like all of these idols in the city, that is not God. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. These idols you have here are not true representations of God, and they certainly are not God. God is far above all of this forest of idols sticking up into the sky from the streets of Athens. He is our Father. He is our Creator. He wants to have a relationship with you. He is not an idol. But here's the fifth thing. He demands repentance. You have an insufficient view of God. You have a view of God that is defective, that is leading you to do wrong things to react in a wrong way. Your gods are giving you a wrong basis for living and leading you into evil, and God demands that you repent. So look at this in verse number 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If you want to discover the true God, you have to turn away from your insufficient, inadequate, deficient, evil views of all of these gods that you have espoused until now. One day, God is going to judge the world. 
That's the next thing on the list here. It says in verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's the 17th thing. He will do this judging through Jesus Christ. And now we come after all of this logic down to the person of Christ, whom Paul does not even at this point mention by name. It says in verse 31, He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And then we come to the 18th point and Paul's final one. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And he begins with the vast creation of, well, he begins with the spiritual hunger in the human heart and then refers to God and all of the attributes of God which are visible to us. And he brings that through a sequence of logic down to a point where we have to repent of our inadequate views of God because he's going to judge us and he's going to do it by someone whom he raised from the dead. Now, I think Paul at this point is ready to say Jesus died for us and rose again. He shed his blood and we have to receive him. But apparently there is tremendous heckling that begins now. There is an outcry that begins now. And he isn't able, I don't think, to continue on with the entire group in the Oropagus. It says in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again about this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. But some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So obviously, to those who responded to the message that he gave, he continued on explaining the gospel in greater detail. And there was a little church form there. A few people were saved. Among them, it says, was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So, there was some response here, not a large response. We have two people mentioned. One was significant because of his standing. The other was a woman uh, who apparently was of significance, and her name is given, and then a number of others. And so there was here a small church that was established. But I think most of the pagans here listened to him. Maybe he planted a seed, which later resulted in more of them being converted. That's often the way that the Lord works. But this speech on Mars Hill or at the Areopagus gives us Paul's way of communicating the gospel to a pagan audience, to a philosophical audience who doesn't have a great deal of background in Hebrew scriptures, or we would say today in the Judeo-Christian patterns of thought. So here are his 18 points of logic. Number one, you are religious. You, like me, have a spiritual need. There is an emptiness in us. Number two, you recognize there is an unknown God. There is reality in the unseen realms, reality and divinity, reality and the ultimate issues of life that you do not fully know. Number three, I can make some of that known to you. Number four, God. He is the creator of everything. Five, as such, he is omnipresent. He pervades the universe. He is not limited to some temple somewhere. Number six, he is also self-existent. He doesn't really need us. We need him. Number seven, 
He gave us life. He is the creator of the human life, of your life. And number eight, he created the entire human race. We all go back to one man whom God created. Number nine, God also created the tides of history and established and appointed for us when and where we would live. Number 10, this God who did all of this, amazingly, wants a personal relationship with us. Number 11, he is near us. Number 12, he is the sole secret to living a fulfilling and an eternal life. In him we live and move and have our being. Number 13, he is in an ultimate sense our father. Number 14, he is not an idol. And inadequate views of him lead us into wrong places. Number 15, as such, he demands we repent, especially that we repent of our inadequate views and our faulty views of who he is, which leads us into an evil lifestyle. That's number 15. Number 16, one day he will judge us all. He will judge the world. Number 17, he will do it through Jesus Christ. And number 18, Jesus rose from the dead. And now he comes to the resurrection and to the heart of the gospel. He built up to it by beginning with spiritual need that is universal and then with the characterization of the God as he understood him to be and knew him to be, both from the uh, biblical sources and from the revelations that he had received, but also, I think, from reason, logic, and common sense. We can extrapolate a great deal about God just by following a train of logic, things that must be true if God is truly God. And in Paul's train of logic here, it leads straight to Jesus Christ and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then when people responded to that message, here, this handful of people, he was able to evangelize them. Now, he didn't spend a lot of time in Athens. I'm not sure why he went on some distance away to Corinth and spent a lot of time there, and his definitive European gateway church he established not at Athens but at Corinth. But it was in Athens that he gave us one of the greatest speeches in all of human history, the speech on Mars Hill. And I think we need to become very familiar with this train of logic. It isn't that difficult. I broke it down into 18 steps, but really there's just four or five uh, big steps connected with this. We have a spiritual need. There is a God. We don't know everything about God that we should know, but inadequate views of God lead to inadequate living. We can extrapolate this, though, that God is the creator. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. If God is God by nature, the very definition of that term, then we know that he created life. He gave us life. He wants to be our father. It's only reasonable to assume he would want to have a relationship with us. He is the way in which our lives are fulfilled. He's going to judge us for our inadequate views of who he is, but he's going to judge us through one Jesus Christ who also came to offer us salvation. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us hope. That is the summary of one of the greatest speeches in human history, the message of Paul on Mars Hill in Athens. So, Learn, read this frequently, learn to internalize it. And let me say in passing, well, not just in passing, let me say pointedly, 
that if you've been listening to this podcast and you yourself still have an inward spiritual void because you have never received the risen Christ as your Savior, then turn from your sins, repent of your inadequate view of who God is, and give yourself fully to Jesus Christ, because it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. Well, thank you so much for joining me today with this podcast and with our study, Unstoppable Through the Book of Acts. We'll continue in a few weeks from chapter 18. As I said, next week, we're going to go off in a different direction for just a little while, and I'm excited about that. But continue to listen. Check out my website, Robert J. Morgan, for all of our resources, both books and and video series that we have there. And encourage other people to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I appreciate you helping me to extend the ministry of the exposition and the teaching of the Word of God. May God bless you, and may He be with you until we meet again.